quoting Mr. Shipley, according a classical libertarian school of thought, according to, prosperity can be thought of as a human rights issue. And regarding that statement, I recently wrote, uh, such a way of thinking puts forth that poverty and beggarliness in a community is an unavoidable consequence of allowing exceptional levels of privilege. So, if for example, in as far as our currency system, for example, can serve as a public contract, then in an applied sense, and thus encompassing the best interest of the entire community, there would be somewhere and something for every individual in a community. But there is not, at least not here, apparently. Um, to wit, uh, the story, the local story of Phoenix Patriot Square Park downtown here, uh, Mike, may be a uh, modern example of the classical irony of, uh, quote, passing by a beggar on one's walk to the temple. Uh, so, what's the local history with Phoenix Patriot Square Park with respect to homelessness and the um, in its in its interface with local government? All right. So, um, first of all, I just want to. Um, well, well, we'll probably come back to ideological concerns. Um, it, we that should have read classical liberalism. What did I write? Classical libertarian school. Well, well, classical liberalism. Okay. What is now known as libertarianism is classical liberalism. With a little L. And um, I think we're probably going to get into the ideological part later. But so just briefly, basically, it was a challenge to the aristocracy then, which was more based on patriarchal family power being handed down. And so the modern aristocracy that we see, you know, we broke that bond of the family. Like, you don't have to be born into privilege now, but we still have a form of privilege that's maybe being passed down through cronies, mm. right? So you might have access to uh, privilege through your father's cronies, right? And that, you know, the people that you grow up with, mm. you know? So it's still kind of, you, you know, power is still um, being centralized in privileged hands. And um, speaking out against that is... That's why that's it's a human rights issue to liberate the market from the dominance of people who want to uh, centralize wealth by coercive uh, force and fraud. So um, a great example of that, why this campaign makes such a great focal point um, as to how the ruling class actually accomplishes this, this is the um, what happened with the Patriot Square Park, which was built as a monument in Central Phoenix because Central Phoenix doesn't really have – you know, for a world-class city, it doesn't really have a world-class any kind of anything about it. Well, I wouldn't I, – yeah. I love I – love It's relatively it's, new, you yeah, know, yeah. so it's got – It doesn't have a distinctive skyline. It doesn't have – it doesn't even have an arch like St. Louis, which is not – It doesn't have that new car – it does have that kind of new car smell to it. but Yeah, you know, and our city is different. Feel. It's geographically spread out for a different reason. I Like, I think that's part of, like, it's – its own unique awesomeness. But anyway, they decided to build a park downtown yeah. and call it Patriot Square Park. And it had these like big um, triangular like awning things and these, <clears throat> these globes, these, I don't know. If you remember Patriot's Park, you remember. And um, so people started sleeping there. And uh, that, was not, uh, that was not a solution for the financial district who didn't want to have to walk by them on their way to work in the morning. Sure. And so suddenly, in July of 1990, June of 1992, a state of emergency was declared in the city of Phoenix, and a measure was brought before the city council to state that it shall be unlawful for any person to camp in Patriots Park or in any building, facility, or parking lot stru or structure or property adjacent thereto. And 
And then it defined what that actually meant. And camp, quote, means, the term, quote, camp means to use real property for living accommodations, making preparations to sleep, laying down bedding for the purpose of sleeping, storing personal belongings, making fire, using tents, any structure of a vehicle, digging, earth, or cooking. Mm. So um, they pretty much ruled out any form of homelessness in Patriots Square Park, which, of course, doesn't make it go away. It just kind of drives it elsewhere. And so those people obviously began going to other parks and sleeping because, I don't know, if you've ever woken up with a cop in your face, um, then you know it's, it's not a pleasant experience, and it's better to just go elsewhere. So they... Um, I don't even want to say that they succeeded because I know that the homeless community still congregated there during the day, but they did uh, succeed in, in, you know, because the shelter is right nearby. And anyway, I'm getting off track. So in 1994, or excuse me, 2004, so 12 years later, um, they decided that they wanted to ban camping in the rest of the city parks. Mm. Um, and this was pushed through as part of an omnibus budget um, amendment. It was just it was one change of many that was pushed through on a night that they devoted a huge budget. Um, however, the people of Phoenix actually did come out to oppose this. Mm. And if you look at the uh, uh, debate from that night, it's a really interesting cross section. And it's really. You know, it's revealing of, you know, whose class interests are being served by by these measures and who who doesn't want to harm homeless people that you might expect to wish to and who is actually acting to harm them that you might think mm. should be protecting them. Uh, but anyway, so the, the short part of that is in December 2004, they went ahead and expanded the ban to um, all of the parks in the city of Phoenix. And that is the law we are now seeking to repeal. Okay. Um, I think it's also interesting. I think it's also of note. And historically, I've attended a lot of uh, municipal, you know, local government meetings, you know, as a newspaper reporter, for example, over the years. And, um, you know, I was at every city council meeting, for example, every planning and zoning. And there were some issues and some items that there would just be, you wouldn't expect, there should be a big crowd, big, huge crowd show up there. And you realize, okay, there's an ethical rub being going down here tonight. Or these people wouldn't show up and, you know, old timers and, you know, CPAs from out of town that, and I look and breathe like Darth Vader. I mean, it's just really and like, wow, you know, I don't know because you don't know. You never know there's an ethical rub. And, then, you know, at least people hear that sort of thing, which means that something was going down basically with money. You know, people trying to, first of all, you know, some people are going to put upon to protect the wealth of the wealthy. I mean, that's the people's job. Whose job it is to protect the wealth of the wealthy? It's their job to protect the wealth of the wealthy. And, um, you know, that's, that, is a, that, is a, that is a political faction, uh, ontologically. Um, and it, I think it also, I mean, it, it, it goes to something like people show, people tend to show up when something's about to happen that isn't going, that's philosophically questionable. Like, okay, that's fine. Okay. You could, you could, you could probably wouldn't be hard pressed to find a facile argument as to why, okay, well, you know, the lady in her minivan and her bunch of kids, they don't want homeless people in the park. You probably find a receptive audience. You could probably find some pretty compelling argument for that. But if you if you don't offer, um, um, you know you can't, you know if you don't offer some sort of resolution, that's a problem, you know regardless of what you're talking about, whether it's homelessness or something else. I mean, you know you can't 
You can't, you know, that, then you're talking about, well, how do we disappear these people? Because that's what you're expecting to happen. And it doesn't, con you know, the statute doesn't necessarily conform to the, to the, to the, to the geographical or actual physical manifestation of, of a population. I mean, there are people, there are people, and I've, you know, like we were talking with um, uh, uh, Julie in a previous interview about the prison population. Um, and they are electorally enfranchisable, even if there's statute that says they're not, just by their sheer numbers and by natural rights, they are. And if they can be made to know that, that's why education is very important, for example, with the homeless population. They're very powerful, especially when their numbers are what they are here. Heck, that's a corporation. They can go around if they if they organize they can go around bullying whomever they want so to speak. I mean it's just like I don't I don't mean to say that that's the end all and that's what corporations should do, but there's there's intrinsic power there, and that's why I think that Vox Venetia, for example, is a very important mechanism in terms of community education because we're put upon to educate all the community, not just part of it, if we expect the system to function like it's supposed to function as it's coined, so to speak. Absolutely. Um, and and I've written <laughs> I've written this question, and we may have already. You know, if it's if we've already done it to death, just say so. Uh, or if you please elaborate further regarding the fundamental sociological causes and aspects of homelessness, and in terms of philosophically localizing the issue, uh, Michael, discuss your constitutional or libertarian perspective. So, what is where where does it come from? All right. So uh, the first half of the question, please elaborate on the fundamental uh, sociological causes and aspects. I think what it's important to touch on here is that the narrative of the dominant culture is that people choose homelessness and that they deserve it. And huh. the reality is hmm, – I'm trying to – because these two questions do connect, and they connect in – the nexus of this question is so complex. I want to try to make it simple. Well, maybe if you just answer one and then the other, then then, then and, and well, it'll become apparent what the correlation is, and then we can state that. Like, or what do you want to answer first? I mean, localize it philosophically in terms of I mean, that's what the Constitution does. It localizes it all the way to the seat of your pants. You know? All right. Let me see if I can work backwards from the ideology. Okay. Um, because uh, let's see. So I already mentioned that um, classical liberalism was the challenge to the ar aristocracy that arose out of the Enlightenment and it fueled the revolution of our founders' time. Mm -hmm. So uh, basically, what it is is like you know people were really inspired by this this radical new idea that all humans um, should be equal before the law, that the king was no better than the, than the common people, right? Mm -hmm. And this was good news not just for white people who didn't have property but it was good news for slaves and it was good news for women Common law. and all everybody got really excited about that and so um that's what fueled the revolution so it brought us into crisis because we had that uh physical challenge or like we had to actually fight the fight and then what happened in in that kind of post-war society is that some new founding documents were written that kind of fossilized where the culture was at that time Right. So the reality was society wasn't actually they were ready to talk about this brilliant idea, but they weren't quite ready for white people who didn't have property, slaves and women. And we now know LGBT people to be free, uh, uh, you know, so some people were more equal than others. So it kind of it crystallized a, a great deal of forward progress, but it didn't take us all the way. So um, this is coming to your question of constitutionalism, because there are people now in modern society who look back to the constitution as like this shining moment of freedom that we should that we need to restore right and that's constitutional conservatism that would not be me hmm. um there are some people who think of that um 
Some people think of those terms and will describe themselves as libertarianism because it's fueled by the same liberalism of our founding time. Mm. But it's really not liberal to actually look backwards. It's liberal to look forward. Like that's the root word, liberation, right? So um, modern libertarianism, um, depending which faction you're in, um, does continue. I, I, I want to see that dream of our founders' time actually made real for everybody. Mm -hmm. We still have felons who are disenfranchised. We still have the homeless community that's being harmed by um, criminalized uh, criminalization. So anyway, backing up to the social sociological causes. Mm -hmm. So what happened was the aristocracy of old, old Europe was in a panic. They saw what had just happened and they're like, great. How do we subvert these new representative bodies? Because we've always had access to a monarchy mm -hmm. um, to hold on to our power. And now we have to kind of subvert this system and find new mechanisms to protect our privilege. And so that's the system of cronyism that kind of arose around the Constitution. So, you know, that's another example of it not having been a perfect expression of true liberation in that moment. I'm not gonna. I'm not saying that it wasn't a great forward progress for its time, but it's a it's a rather low standard for what liberation can actually mean. The promise of that is far greater. Yeah. So um, now we're in modern society. We have this new system and privilege built up around um, cronyism and uh, just a different form of wealth being transferred from the wealthy to the next generation of the wealthy, and it continues to suppress those in the lower. Um, classes of society and hold them down by force, right? That's the mechanism by law through all of these various machinations of state um, we are held down. And so when the, the, the dominant culture gives the narrative that, uh, that we're choosing this, um, that's one of the insidious things about it, that it hides behind a voluntary choice. Yeah. It hides behind freedom to um, artificially limit your choices in ways that are not authentically free right if my choice if my choice is starvation or wage slavery i haven't made a voluntary choice if mm. my choice is sleeping in if my choice is um getting dragged away into well i mean actually this one's even more insidious because you don't have a choice in this case you're choosing to sleep between public or private property mm. one's a misdemeanor one's a felony yeah. take your pick and yeah. that's not a voluntary it turns out that the, the misdemeanor is the pr private property and the felony is the public property, or is it vice versa? No, okay. uh, urban camping on a public park, is a which is the one, this is the misdemeanor. Yeah, okay. But these can, I believe they can stack up and become aggravated. I, you know what? I don't know if it's subject to the three strikes rule. It's an interesting, it's an interesting, I mean, sometimes the three strikes rules are related to particularly codified, uh, like narcotics, for example. I don't know. I don't mean to go there. I mean, it's interesting what you say about the Constitution and how and how the philosophically enlightened axioms of old and uh, and of in, uh, you know of antiquity and of old and of classical and modern um, all and have it can be corrupted by precedent or by derelict or corrupt uh, human artifice. Well, no kidding. I mean, any Zen Cohen can be bastardized. Yes, I, I think what the important question to put for the likes of of individuals and United States citizens, for example, and constituents, whether they're enfranchised in their rights or not, or what, you know, whether they know that they have them or not, is, is it still applicable as a, as the United States constitution? So to, you know, for example, it's still applicable as, and I've said this frequently as an easily defensible affirmation of self-evident a priori natural rights. 
Um, and and th- so because natural rights are there, it affirms them. Um, just because someone tells you, well, I disagree because of the bureaucracy that I've engineered, that doesn't make them right. They may be the one on the on the right end of the gun, but it doesn't make them right. And I still th- I see evidence all the time of people actually pursuing this course of action through uh, common law that is uh, not regnery, but by by the proletariat or by the people. And typically, it tends to work if properly approached right, and if it and if you know if people are enfranchised and educated about how to pursue it. I still think it still functions as the as a coin of the realm. I still see it work. I mean, I also see plenty of examples where there's a lot of work that needs to be done, and I see I see an atmosphere, a climate where any time the front is not being actively guarded or advocated for, then very quickly it is encroached upon um, private. Um, you know, you know, secular, uh, right out in the open, just you know, uh, in bad faith uh, manipulation of, of of uneducated people and and, and large demographics. Um, is, do you have any more on on sociological causes? I mean, you say it's not a choice, and that's maybe true. And 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 you know, it's maritime law that at such time that a person can no longer, you know, I mean, you're either a ward or a warden, so to speak, as a as a man of freedom. And if you you know uh, the right to to rights are self-evident and you have to be you know you have to be self-aware to recognize that you have those own rights some people are capable of of affecting those rights they don't know it they've been they're in a situation and, and that's and it happens all the time and people who realize it are such as yourself are put upon to do something about it um so it's not necessarily always a choice often and we'll get to this regarding the substance abuse of the whole thing how it's uh, inextricable from the kind of the uh the the uh, the the world that is homelessness um and 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 it's you know that's an insidious element in society as well and it's used to disenfranchise people from their cognitive faculty so that they can be manipulated and at such time that they've passed that bright line then you know yeah it may be gross and it may be pathetic and it may be terrible and it may be a living hell but but um you know that 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 element is still out there you know doing it to people I mean, maybe it's not their fault, but it's still a community issue, and the community can't solve the issue if they're not on the same page about homelessness. That I hope that makes sense. It probably doesn't, but um, well, I get, sociological I, causes and aspects. Of it. Um, I, you know, I, since you pointed out that we're going to talk about substance abuse later, I'll save that. But that is one. There's a socio. I, I have some thoughts on that, and I'll okay. just save them for that 